0: One of, the, uh, one of the great American myths is that um, all of us uh, prefer to be a bunch of rugged individualists. That uh, somehow or another deep within each one of us we think of ourselves as kind of a mixture of uh, Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone and maybe a little John Wayne. And that we all want to kind of stand out as being individuals. Uh, and yet if the truth be known I think that most of us would rather kind of go with the flow kind of blend in with the crowd, not be pointed out, not stand out. You know, the old clichés, not rock the boat, you know, not rub against the grain. You know, we just like, to, and, and it's obvious too because, you know, and we see that pressure, our kids see that pressure in that they have to wear the same clothes that everybody else wears. They want to make sure their hair is the same way as everybody else because none of us like to stand out in the crowd. And uh, as, we, as we consider that, you know, few of us like to do that. And I want to ask you a question. Why do you think that it is that most of us would like to just kind of blend in with the group? I want to try to make this as homey as possible um, to try to kind of get this thing set off in the right direction because, you know, this, this isn't going to be another lecture or sermon type of a forum. So um, you can actually, Tom knows this, he's already overcome this fear of yelling out in crowds, <laughs> but uh, for, for the rest of you who are struggling a little bit with it, you know, Uh, why why do you think it is that we want to just kind of blend in with the crowd? I think I see a hand over there. Yes. Okay, uh, because we don't feel like we'll be as what? Okay, as good as everyone else. We just kind of want to be accepted by the group. What's that? It's comfortable. You know, it's comfortable just to come in and kind of just kind of graze with the herd, you know. And just kind of like be a part of it. No, no, that wasn't derogatory toward the, the Simpsons Sh- Shepherd Group or anything. But, uh, well, no, they call themselves the herd. Is that not true? Let's straighten it out here. Okay, there. Thank you very much. But, you know, just kind of go with, you know, kind of go with the flow. I mean, if you, if you could put it in one word, why do we want to be like the group? What? Safety. Safety. How about the the word fear? We're afraid. We're afraid to be different. We want to be accepted. I think the biggest point is that we're afraid to be rejected by the group that we want to be accepted by. We want to be accepted so we blend in. We don't want to stand out. We don't want to do something different. We don't want to go against the flow. We don't want to swim upstream. We don't want to rub against the grain. We don't want to do any of those things. We want to just be accepted. We're afraid of being rejected by the group we're afraid of being ridiculed by a group we're afraid of standing out alone in a crowd we just want to be accepted and uh, one of the things that that I'm convinced of is that we can see symptoms of this all throughout our society and uh, one of the things that I'm real concerned about is is that you know we live in a society of for the most part people who are gutless and spineless and they're jellyfish and uh, you know that's just my observation you think whatever you want But 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 the reason I say that is we live in a society of people who can stand by and watch a fellow citizen beaten or robbed or raped or mugged and stand by and watch and not do anything about it. We've got politicians who uh, they don't stand for anything, so they fall for everything. The depth of their conviction is based on the recent Gallup polls. I mean that's that's how shallow we've become we don't stand for anything that's the symptoms we see throughout our society we see it all over the place we see it in in churches where pastors stand up and the only thing they care about is make sure they fill all the seats because you don't want to step on anybody's toes you want to be popular you want to fill the pews and so as a result we compromise those things that are absolutes those things that are standards we live in an age of moral relativism we live in an age where there are no absolutes there are no standards whatever is right for the group that's the standard that's set and, and, and because of that, we have become people who don't stand for anything and we fall for everything. And I know that sounds harsh, but I'm a little bit sick and tired of it, and I'm tired of it because I see too many of God's people doing the same thing. And so this series that, that I've chosen to, to do, and I don't know how this is going to work, but um, it isn't, I guess. Well, we'll kind of like pretend you can see it. It says, standing firm. We don't need it. We don't need it. But the bottom line is that we're going to take a look for the next several weeks at how we can stand firm in a world that frankly is going in another direction than the direction that God wants us to go. I've got a t-shirt. I was going to wear it, but I didn't want to stand out in the group, so I picked something a little more, you know, a little less obvious. But but the t-shirt, if you've seen it, it has a bunch of fish going in one direction, and it says, uh, go against the flow. And it shows you know, another fish kind of going this way, but the gist of it simply is that God's people are going to have to go against the flow because the majority of people in the world system that we live in are going a way that is contrary to the things of God. We are going to constantly swim upstream, so you might as well get used to it and start to understand it. So the series that we're going to do is one that's going to be based on simply that, standing firm. How do you stand firm in a society that's coming at us from every different direction? When I was, uh, when I was growing up, um, we had, uh, you know, uh, back in Pennsylvania, there were actually hills and stuff, and at the end of our street, which was a dead-end street, and we didn't have cul-de-sacs. And it made it real easy because people didn't drive around in circles. They knew when they got there, they went, oh, we went the wrong way, and they backed out, and they went up the street, you know. But, um, but there was some advantage of that. But we, we had um, a, a hillside, and it was a baseball field, and center field was basically dug out. And so it was just, it, it, was, it wasn't a fence, it was, it was dirt. And the dirt kind of went up, and on the top of the hill, if you hit it on top of the hill, it was a home run. But we used to like to play as king of the hill. And would stand on top of the hill, and people would run up, and they'd try to knock you or drag you down the hill. And uh, one of the things that you learned real quick was that you better make sure that you set your feet right because when they came at you, you got to be planted firmly in the ground or they're going to drag you on down the hillside. And, uh, and I thought about that because as it, when I played football, one of the things that we learned as a linebacker, whenever we would be out on the, on the end and, uh, and a running back or a tight end would come down on you and if you were playing outside linebacker, one of the things you had to do was make sure you square your shoulders and you took them on right here. You didn't turn like this to take on a hit because you get knocked on your back. So you took them on and you came off like this and you took them and you planted your feet and you were able to drive them into the ground instead of being driven in the ground. You know, what I thought about that in spiritual terms because that's what God wants us to do. He wants his people to have their feet firmly planted on the ground because when you're attacked by the world that we live in that wants you to go a certain direction, if you don't go with the flow, they're either going to knock you down and drag you with them or you're going to have to stand there and take the hits that we're going to have from all around us. So this series is going to be designed on how to stand firm in a world that frankly outnumbers us. And we have a choice. And one of the big problems is that standing firm is probably, you know, in the midst of opposition, uh, isn't a very fun thing to do. It's lonely. Uh, Sometimes it's frightening. Sometimes we question whether we're really standing where we should be standing and if it's the right thing to do. I mean, there's a lot of things that we struggle with. And uh, what God wants us to do is to stand firm when we're opposed in the world that we live in. And uh, I'll guarantee you this, that uh, there'll be, there, there's going to be a lot of opposition to the things of God. And as I talk to people and as they go through it, you know, in the recession that we're in and the business downturn and all the problems that we see around us and marriages falling apart, I think it's very appropriate that we just take some time to learn how to stand firm, how to hunker down, as they say, and just get ready to take the blows because they're going to come. Um, one of the things that I, that I learned, too, when I was playing football was that I was a, I was a, a sophomore on, a, on the varsity team. And when you want to stand firm when you're opposed, it's a very lonely thing, and it can be, frankly, it can be kind of scary. And uh, one of the things that I learned real quick was when I was a sophomore on the varsity team, we had two-day practices in the summer. The last two weeks of summer were always two-a-days, and, uh, and then we went into the season. But the thing that was bad about two-a-days was that that's what it was. It was two-a-days. It meant that you practice from 9 to noon. You had a lunch break, and then you practice from 1.30 to 4, whatever the timing worked out. And so it was a grind. Uh, but one of the things to make it even more of a grind was at the end of the second session, we would have a two-mile run. Fully in, in full pads, at the end of a full day, you'd have a two-mile run and so you'd be out and we'd be running while well, I was a sophomore we had a lot of juniors and then we had a lot of seniors on the team and one thing that I was able, always able to do is run <laughs> and it came in handy several times I may <laughs> But but uh, but I could run and and at the end of the two day practices would get out and would go on a two would do the two-mile run and it was in a 440 track around the field and would go and uh, I'll never forget the first time we had a two-mile run I went out and I ran I was just cruising along and uh, came within 15 yards of lapping the the lead senior runner, and when the two mile run was done, so I was done. He still had 440 yards to go, and I was done. And I was taking off my equipment and walking toward the locker room, and the coaches were loving it because they were making making a big deal about why are you letting this little wimp guy beat you guys. You guys better suck it up. This is the kind of season we're going to have. Blah blah blah. And I'm thinking, gosh, coach, you know, I don't know if that's really necessary. But you know better than me, whatever's going to motivate them. And, uh, and I'll never forget, as I was walking up and we would go down to, into the dressing room, a couple of the biggest, ugliest guys you'd ever want to meet came up to me and we were kind of walking and said, man, that's a pretty good run. And I was thinking, oh, thanks, thanks a lot. You know, pretty stupid of me to think that. And they said, if you ever do that again, we're going to kill you. <laughs> now, I didn't quite understand what the problem was. But they explained it to me the further that we walked down into the stairs. And the darker that it got going in the dressing room, the more I realized that maybe I was going to die. And, uh, but they just said, you know what, don't ever do that again. And, uh, and I couldn't understand. Why? Why? Why not? What were they trying to say? Hey, you're making us look bad. So you're making us look bad. Don't you ever do that again. Or we're going to make life miserable for you. How many of you work in a union environment? I don't know what brought that into mind. (laughs) Scott, let me ask you something. What's uh, What's the unwritten standard of a union shop? You go with the flow. You better go with the flow. If you've ever worked in a union environment, I mean, basically the issue is very simple. We have a standard here, and the standard is mediocrity. And if you exceed this standard, we will do whatever we can to make sure that we bring you back in line with everyone else. Don't produce more than you have to. Don't produce more than you should. Because if you do that, you're going to make the rest of us look bad, and therefore it's not a good idea. So you come on back with us, would you please? Because after all, raises aren't based on merit. Raises aren't based on energy expended. Our raises are based on time served. And so we've become a society of mediocrity, and that's been the level that's been acceptable. Let me ask you something. How many of you did well in school? No, I didn't think very many of you. It was a long shot, but I thought I'd give it a, give it a chance. Holy smokes. I mean, think about it. Oh, yeah, I know. you. Yeah, you did well, right, I know. They passed you to get you on out of there. <laughs> give them an A, get them up. But uh, what's, what's the standard? I mean, now, okay, how many of you remember the geek and the nerds? You know, the geeks and the nerds, the ones who always had everything double-spaced, the ones that, you know, before their word processors always had everything typed up real nice and neat, no misspellings, no typos. It always looked good. They always had a nice cover on their report. You know, that kind of person. Everybody remember that kind of person? Didn't you just hate that kind of person? I mean, most people hated that kind of person. Nobody liked that person who, who wanted to be excellent in whatever. And so what happens in school is that we put pressure on those who want to be better at what they do by saying, you know what, why don't you just drop on back with the rest of us? See, we're not going to pick up the pace to keep up with you, but we'll call you names, we'll call you a geek, we'll call you a nerd, we'll make fun of you, we won't invite you to things, we won't accept you into our group if you're going to continue to make us look bad, so would you just drop on back with us? So you've seen that. How many of you are going through right now in your work environment? You know, we see it in sales all the time. Man, what are you trying to do, make us look bad? You know, kind of, you know, and so, and so what we do is we teach each other to manage the news. You know what that means, don't you? It means that, you, you know, you sandbag. Um, you know, if you sell a whole bunch this month, you know, don't turn, those, don't turn all of them in. Turn some of them in. Wait till the next month. Turn the other ones in next month. You know, it's kind of like every, we all learn how to manage the news in whatever business that we're in. And all of it's based on the fact that we all want to be accepted by the group. And so we're indoctrinated on a daily basis. And the problem that we have, if you've got your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 12. And um, we're going to take a look at how we can stand firm when outnumbered. But the thing that we need to take a look at is uh, basically you know, an analysis of what it means to conform what it means to conform or to be like the group. Because the society we live in says this, hey, you know what, conform or else. Be like the rest of us or else. And the pressure's on. And so in Romans chapter 12, there's an analysis of conformity that we see here. And uh, what I want to do is just go through it and uh, identify some things that are very true. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says I urge you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God which is your spiritual service of worship do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect don't conform don't be like the group but be transformed be different That's a message that we need to leave here and understand. Stop being like the group. God's people aren't like a group. And in fact, if you want, let's go through it and we'll take a look at six things. And I don't know, I might try this one more time. Maybe not. But there there are six things that we need to look at. What? Try it? try it. Okay, thanks. Thanks, I needed that boast of confidence. Yeah. What? Hey, I wasn't one of those geeks in school. Did he say something again? Okay. All right, let's go through it. Let's take a look at six six observations from this text. Romans 12. I urge you, therefore, brethren, brethren, You know, one thing that we need to understand is that God's standards are for God's people. I urge you, therefore, brethren. He's talking about Christians. In order for you and I to stand firm in the midst of a world that's opposed to the things of God, the first thing that you need to understand from the very beginning is that you and I need to have a living and vital relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me explain to you why. Because the world system that we live in makes sense to the people of the world. It really does. It makes a lot of sense. See, there is a way that seems right to man, the Bible says, and that's the way that seems right to the world that we live in. There are things that just make sense to the world, but don't make sense according to the standards of God there are a lot of things and I you know you can think of several of them you know it's like well it makes sense if we're gonna get drunk to have somebody drive for us see that makes sense because at least we can still do what we want to do and try to minimize the downside of it that makes sense but to God's people there's a way that seems right but in its end is destruction God says wait that doesn't make any sense at all let's eliminate the root problem let's not deal with the symptoms we live in a society that tries to band-aid symptoms And so what God's saying is, if you're going to stand firm in a world that's opposed to the things of God, you have to come to know Jesus Christ in a personal way. You have to have a living, vital faith in Jesus Christ. That's why it says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by God's mercies, or in view of God's mercies, this instruction is for believers and believers only. It makes no sense to tell the world you live in, hey, you know what, don't conform to the world, when the world that we live in says, hey, wait, man, this makes a lot of sense. I've been conforming all my life, and you know what? It, it makes sense not to rock the boat. It makes sense to go with the flow. After all, you know, if I don't stand out and I just kind of go along with it, I'll get the promotion that I want. I'll get the raise that I want. If I don't confront people on, on the truth or ethics in business, then I'll be accepted by them, and I won't cause them any trouble, and I'll get to go where I want to go. That all makes sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me to challenge somebody and say, well, that's lying, that's cheating, that's stealing, that's not right. That doesn't make any sense. I won't get what I'm looking to get out of this life. Do you see that? See, it's counterproductive. But for God's people who have a living and active and vital faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, hey, well, this instruction now is for us. This is for Christians only because it doesn't make any sense any other way. And the second thing he says is that there's an urgency. I urge you, therefore, brethren... There is an intense urgency in the message that he gives. He's saying, man, you know what? If I could just beg you or plead with you, or if I could smack you upside your head, or if I can just grab you by the shirt or the collar and say, look, you know what? I'm urging you not to go with the flow. Don't get caught up in group mentality. Don't get caught up in the group think. Don't get caught up in the world system. Don't fall for this stuff. That's what he's saying. I'm urging you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you. And in fact, the word even goes deeper than that. To urge means to choose sides. It would be as if, like uh, we talked about before, where you'd have a line of people who you would choose to be on your baseball team or on a football team or whatever, and you'd pick that person, and you're on my team, and you're on this team. There's two sides that are, that are drawn up. And so the sides, basically, that he's trying to get across to us is there's two sides in this world, and that's it, two. There's God's side... And then there's the world side. Are you going to choose to be like the world and on their team, or are you going to choose to be on God's team? See, that's why in Joshua 24, Joshua came to the point where he was just disgusted with the people and said, you know what? Man, you know what? We're we're just trying to blend in with all the nations around us. We just want to be accepted. We want to be one of the crowd. We want to blend in with whomever is in charge or who we think has the power. I deal with guys all the time, oh they think this coach has the power so they're going to kiss up to him and they're going to do whatever he says to do. And then that coach is gone in two weeks or he's gone next season. And how ironic it was that we try to serve men who have no longevity anywhere and you kiss up to your boss or in this business or whatever and you know what, hey bosses come and go, businesses come and go, civilizations come and go. There's been 19 civilizations that have come and have gone and every one of them thought that they were the last great civilization. Go to Greece and look at the ruins, go to Rome and look at the ruins, go to Egypt and look at the ruins. people thought that they had it made they thought they were gonna last and God says no you know what let me tell you something I raise up empires and I take them down I raise up Kings and I remove them I raise up bosses and I'll take them I raise up coaches and I'll remove them I'm in control I'm in charge and so if I were you what I'd do is I'd get on his side if you want to kiss up to anybody and do what's right I'll tell you what you can't go wrong going that direction It's like, Lord, I want to, I want to, and that's why Joshua said, hey, you know what? I don't care what you people do anymore, but as for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. Thank you. Every now and then you're kind of appropriate there. (laughs) All the rest are kind of going, you know, mm -hmm." yeah, that's cool. But isn't it, I mean, that's the truth. There's two sides. Are you going to live to please God? Are you going to live to please the world that you live in, which is so temporary and always, it's always changing? And are you going to live to please yourself and you don't even know what pleases you? I mean, that's the problem that we see in marriages. That's the problem that we see in people who job from house to house and job to job and husband to husband and wife to wife and all that kind of stuff because they think, well, this will please me if I get married or if I do this. And it's like, oh, this doesn't please me anymore. Well, it used to please you. Why doesn't it please you anymore? Well, I guess I'm just hard to please. Well, hallelujah, that's true. You know, and that's the problem. We, are, we don't know what will please us. But I'll tell you what, I know what pleases God. All I've got to do is turn and open it up and look at it, and God says, this pleases me, and I do that, I'll never go wrong. So the sense of urgency is whose, whose side are you going to be on? Who's, who do you want to please? Are you going to please the crowd? And the crowd always changes. Or are you going to please God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? But we have a choice. The third thing that he says is that their urgency involves a sacrifice. Now let me ask you a question. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of sacrifice? Huh? Pain. 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 What do you think of? Do you get you people think on this side? You know, they're answering all the questions. You got Tom on that side, the designated yeller, but that doesn't that doesn't count. Huh? Okay, you give up something that we like. Why? For what? Has come. Huh? Why do you do it? Huh? For something better. Right? Alright, sacrifice. Give up something that you like for what? For something better. Okay, yeah, now now we start to question, well, is that really a sacrifice? If you give up something that you like for something better, is it really a sacrifice? That's a good question. Okay, name some areas that you sacrifice in. What is that? Time. time. Okay, how do you sacrifice time? Okay, there's always something that you can, I mean, time, we only have so much of it, right? It's a valuable commodity, there's not that much of it. I mean, we only get so many minutes of every day, and that's all that we get. So it's a matter of choosing. Okay, I am going to do this for that, with that time, and have to sacrifice that, or I'm going to sacrifice doing this to do that because that I think is more important in the long run. Okay. See, that's excellent. Did you see that? You're right. That's not sacrifice. If you defer gratification to a later date, then you haven't sacrificed anything. If you take money that you can spend on yourself today and put it in a retirement fund so you can spend it on yourself later, well, that's not sacrifice. But if you take something that you could enjoy today and say, I'm not going to enjoy that because this person needs it more, and therefore I'm going to do what's best for the other person, then that's sacrifice. Taking care of a grandchild that has no parents. Um, you were, okay, to make something sacred. Right? Now you're going to have to put it in... Okay, good. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute. That's a great point. But to, to sacrifice means to make something sacred, which means you elevate it beyond that which is selfish to make it something that's higher in meaning, and we're going to see that in a second. But we see sacrifice... We, I mean, we sacrifice all, all the time. But what he's saying is, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. One of the problems that I see with living sacrifices is that living sacrifices have a tendency to want to crawl off the altar. Now, think about it for a second. You've got to tie it down, you're going to have to knock it out. They just aren't up there going, this is cool. And so see see what our problem is? Think about it in terms of practical application. Our problem as a living sacrifice is that we continually want to jump off the altar of doing what's right before God and meet our own temporal needs that we have at that point in time. So a living sacrifice, see how we conform with the group? The group, the world mentality is, hey, please yourself. If it feels good, do it. Live for today. Who cares? And so that's what we're wrestling with. But it also involves an inner person and an outer person. Or an utter person. You know, I wish that thing wouldn't have worked. Well, you know, the utter guy, right, Bill? You know, it's it's this is right in Pittsburgh. It is. It's the inner person and the utter person. All right, we can run with that for a second. Or the outer person, depending on where you're from and what local dialect you want to try to uh, attribute your language to. Anyway, meaning what? Meaning what? I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What's he talking about? Okay, not only our outward actions, but an inner decision. You know what he's saying? Go ahead. What's that? Okay, good. Yeah, see, if you start, if you commit the heart, see, that's why the very first thing that we talked about is the truth's mainly for Christians. Because a Christian is one who has a change of heart a change of heart who he, they believe that Jesus Christ is a change of heart about what they believe will please God it's a change of heart it's saying oh you know what I used to think God I had to do things to please you now I realize that Jesus did it all and all that I need to do is believe that what he did is sufficient see it's a change of heart that says I can't work for your uh, for your favor I can't do enough good things so you'll like me I realize there's nothing good in me and that everything is good is in Jesus so therefore it doesn't make any sense to be doing outward actions when the heart is wrong That's why Jesus said to the religious leaders, you know what, wait a minute, you know what, you're doing all the things on the outside that seem to be right, but I know your heart, and your heart's far from me, and you're a bunch of just, you know, whitewashed sepulchers, you're dirty, filthy, rotten within, even though the world looks at you and says you're doing what's right. See, but God is not like man. God looks at the inner person. That's what he said. God does not look at the outward person or the outward appearance, but he looks at the inner quality of the man or the woman. He looks at the heart. God knows your heart. God knows right now whether you're here or whether you're far away. I can't tell except for the ones who have their eyes closed and I know they're probably meditating. But I can't tell because you look like you're here. But God knows your heart. He knows where you are. He knows where you're going. He knows what's going on in your life. He knows whether you're just kissing up to the people here. He knows whether you're just going through the motions. He knows whether or not you want to be right with him. God knows the heart. But we can't tell because we deal with outer actions. So what he's saying is, he's saying, hey, Christian, you know what? Let's make an inner decision to do what's right before God. And therefore, your outer actions will naturally flow from it. We need our hearts right with God, or we will conform to the world. That's why Donald Barnhouse said this. He said he said that there are two things that are involved here: present your bodies as your inner person, your your bodies present as your inner person, your bodies as your outer person. He says this: there are two things that are involved. Our innermost self that does the presenting, and our bodies that are presented. It should almost go without saying that it is useless to give our bodies if we have not first of all given of ourselves. Isn't that fascinating? Keeps us from going through the motion. And you know what's important about it? If I have a resolve in my heart to do what's right before God, then I don't care what the group says. I don't care what direction the group is going. I'll give you an example. Look at Romans, if you've got your Bible still open, look at Romans chapter 6 for a second. Romans chapter 6. Go back to uh, Romans 6 verse 12. fact in, in 11 it says this even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin but alive but alive to God in Christ Jesus therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God do not continue presenting your bodies as an instrument of unrighteousness. Let me give you a simple illustration of what that means. This past week I was in Atlanta, and uh, there's a couple of places that some of the guys like to go to in Atlanta. Uh, One's called the Gold Club. You want to jot these down in case you're there. One is called the Gold Club, and the other is called the Cheetah Club. And uh, the Cheetah Club, um, I think they advertise uh, 60 beautiful babes and, um, you know, in various arrays of clothing or non-clothing. And uh, there is the, the, the temptation or the pressure to conform with the group because that's where the group is going. You know, I thought about that from an inner conviction standpoint, and it's like, you know what, if I don't have any inner convictions, and that's what the group is doing then it's easy to go along and do it because nobody knows me in Atlanta, a couple of people, but I walked down the street and no one stopped to say, hi, how you doing? No, I, don't, I didn't feel any pressure to, to do anything because nobody knew me. That's pretty much anonymous. And, uh, and the pressure is there to conform to the group. And I remember what you know, th- this passage says. It says, don't go on presenting your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness. And I thought, very practical application is, don't put your body in a place where it's going to compromise the standards of God. See, and even the decision to go is an inner decision to go, and you've already started to compromise, and now your body just naturally will flow with it. See, it has to start, the resolve starts in the heart. So it's like, if I'm not convicted, that that's not right or that is wrong. And the group says, come on, let's go. We're going to the Cheetah Club. Let's go. We've got a bunch of guys going, you know, don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be part of the group? Don't you want to be accepted by the group? And uh, and the reality of it is, no, I don't. I'd rather be accepted before God. You know, and and in fact, I'm sorry that you even asked me, because if you asked me to go, there was a tendency for you to believe that I may even want to go. And I must not be standing firm on my convictions that you would even think that see how it works see don't put yourself into a position don't go somewhere don't do something don't be part of something that compromises what God says is right or wrong see the inner person has the conviction the outer person stands firm don't do it and so what he's saying is as we go through it you know it's kinda like hey you got a problem drinking don't go to the bar you got a problem with lust don't watch the movies don't go to the clubs don't you know don't go to the health clubs in southern california you know, whatever your problem is, don't present your bodies as an instrument of unrighteousness. Don't put yourself in that environment because you're going to have a problem as you go through it. But I think what Lois was saying was true, and that is this. The sacrifice is a spiritual one. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable God to God, which is what? Your spiritual service of worship. Sacrifice, taking something and making it sacred, is saying, guess what? This is out of worship to God. My not doing this is an act of worship to God. My not having sex outside of marriage is an act of worship to God. Do you follow this? My not lying, my not cheating, my not stealing, even though I see some temporary, immediate gratification if I do it, Lord, I'm not going to do it because it's an act of worship to you. I'm not going to the cheetah club, not because it wouldn't be a fun thing to do. I'm not going there for any other reason than the fact that, Lord, you say that it's wrong, and out of an act of worship and honor and respect to who you are, I'm not going to go. You see how that works? In very practical terms. Lord, I'm going to give this up as an act of spiritual worship to you. See, and it also involves something that's radical, and we'll kind of wrap it up on this. It's radical, and it's also practical. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. The practical thing is he says this basically, don't let this world continue to pour you into its mold. Don't allow yourself to become like the group. Stand firm on your convictions. Do what's right before God. He says, don't allow yourself to fall into group think. Said and that's practical. But you know what's radical? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Is radical. It's radical see the inner person and what what conformity means to me is this see what are you on the inside what are you on the inside conforming means that you express something on the outside that you're not on the inside it means that you're a Christian in a circle but you become like the circle and you're not expressing who you really are on the inside that's conformity Do you follow that But transform is that you express on the outside who you really are on the inside. There's no hypocrisy. There's not a mask. It's not a masquerade. It's not a false thing. And so basically what ends up happening is this. As a Christian, Jesus Christ lives within you. If you allow him to live his life through you and express himself through you, that's being transformed. If you suppress him within you, and you do something that visibly and externally is different, then you are being conformed. So the moment you feel convicted that, guess what? I am living a lie. I am going with the flow. I'm doing what the group wants me to do, and God will convict you of that. Then you know immediately, hey, I'm conforming to this world. I need to be transformed by a renewed mind. I need to ask God to give me wisdom on how to handle this. I need to ask God to give me strength so that I don't fall into like the, the rest of this group here. I need to stand firm on my convictions. Do not be conformed. Don't let this world force you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you know how you get a new mind? Right here. The Word of God. It renews our minds. It reprograms us to think in ways that please God rather than in ways that please ourselves or the world because we've been programmed that direction. And we'll see that next week. How do you stand firm when you're outnumbered? When you're in a whole world of people, in business, in social settings, in your neighborhood, uh, wherever it is that want to go one direction and God says that's wrong, you need to go another direction. How do you stand firm and not get caught up in the flow and get swept downstream? I urge you, you know what I urge you? I urge you to memorize those two verses. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, It's your spiritual service of worship. Don't be conformed. Don't let this world pour you into its mold, but be transformed, be radical, be different by the renewing of your mind that you will know what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable, and that which is perfect, which means basically it will lead you to maturity in your faith with Christ. That's what we're going to talk about over the next several weeks. Let's just close in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this opportunity to be together. We just thank you for your word that it does uh, produce a renewed mind. We thank you for your love for us, and uh, we thank you especially for Jesus Christ, that he is God in human flesh who came to this earth and lived a perfect and sinless life, to reconcile us to you. That he died on the cross, he shed his blood for our sins, and that three days later he rose from the dead, proving that he is God. Lord, we thank you that it's by grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from you, lest anyone should boast. That we need to turn to Jesus. And as we do, may he transform us, may he make a radical change in our life, so that what's past is past, and what becomes all things become new. And we just thank you that uh, you can give us the strength, you can give us the courage to stand firm in a world that is opposed to the things of God. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.